Welcome to Cultural Controversy with Shannon Fisher, where we tackle everything from the fabulous to the forbidden. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cultural Controversy. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and today we have a very interesting guest. Her name is Frances Haugen, better known to many as the Facebook whistleblower. She is an expert in algorithmic product management, and she has worked at Google, Yelp, and Pinterest, and famously at Facebook. In the spring of 2021, she disclosed tens of thousands of pages of internal documents to the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Wall Street Journal, revealing that Facebook was both aware and complicit in radicalization and political violence around the world. And she felt a moral obligation to reveal that. So I'm excited to have you here today. Francis, welcome. Hi, thank you for inviting me. In the book, you said something really powerful that that struck me. You said, I want to be clear, when you feel fatalism, it is a sign that someone is trying to steal your power. And that was one of the big takeaways of all of this is that, you know, Facebook and other Mm. tech companies are kind of pushing the narrative that we have to make a choice between freedom of speech and safety. And that really isn't true. So how is it that we can have both and maintain our power? So it's, it's interesting, like part of why I brought out so many documents was I wanted to show um, how innovative and how uh, nuanced like the people who were trying to work on safety inside of Facebook were and how they would approach very slightly altering these systems to have very different outcomes. Um, uh, so, for example, you know, little tiny things like should you have to click on a link before you reshare it? It sounds pretty insignificant, but it's like 10 or 15% less misinformation by just introducing a moment of reflection or like a moment of intentionality before people share. Sure. Um, and what's inter- and 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 the, the 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 thing that's frustrating is that you know there's this large spectrum of things. It's things like you know having a conversation with someone who's different from you. You know, like uh, like speaking in a way that you can reach across the aisle is hard. If you just go in there and say agnostic of content, agnostic of what they're saying, let's give a tiny boost to people who are able to connect and have constructive conversations with people who are different than them. For free, you get less hate speech, less violence, and less nudity. You know, Mm -hmm. it's all these little tiny tweaks. But Facebook doesn't use them because they end up uh, hurting the business by just little tiny slices each time. You know, it might be 0.1% profit here, 0.1% profit there, but they also have like 35% profit margins. So, you know, giving back a few percentage points is not the end of the world. A lot of us talk about how social media is toxic. And I, and I don't think mm-hmm. we realize that the, the users of these platforms, how toxic it really is and that it is designed to be toxic. So you you describe how the you know algorithms, they're designed for engagement and that extremism breeds engagement, and then that engagement breeds more extremism. And uh, you, you'd say there's kind of a, a loop that can't differentiate between positive and negative interactions. Mm-hmm. So how do we cure that toxicity? Well, it's one of these questions around, like, how do we, what kinds of social spaces do we want to spend our time in? You know, like, people like to talk to me about, like, uh, the Arab Spring. You know, like, they're like, hey, didn't Facebook, like, topple these dictators? And one of the things I always point out to them is like the version of Facebook we used back in 2010 had no algorithms driving what we paid attention to. Like the thing that that adding AI saying, hey, AI, you tell me what to pay attention to today instead of like other people I trust. 
means that uh, you, you, you put yourself at the, the, the mercy of the bias in the algorithms. And so just for context for listeners, every algorithm has an ideology. It doesn't have to be intentional. It can be a thing where, where someone set out with one goal and because the computer is, is blind, it just knows math. It just knows that its goal function gets higher and higher. You know, there's more points in, in you know, it's scoring higher and higher each time. Um, uh, AIs can uh, end up in situations where, uh, I'll give you an example, Mark Zuckerberg himself put out a white paper in 2018 saying, we know that when we reward content for getting clicks, we end up rewarding extreme content because the fastest path to a click is anger. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the last thing I, I would put, put there is like, we can have social media that is designed at the scale of our communities, of our friends and family, things that respect our intentionality. So for example, if you just give priority to content you actually ask for, you know, so for example, say, give priority to my friends and family, give priority to pages I actually followed, groups I actually joined. For free, you get less violence, less hate speech, less nudity. Your friends and family are not the problem. The algorithms are the problem. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you talk about kind of on a, on a global scale, you just mentioned the Arab Spring, and that's a, a positive outcome of 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 what can happen on these platforms but you also um, a a large part of the reason you came forward is that there's a a dramatic and high human cost for some of Mm, the actions mm -hmm. that were happening on a global scale you you came forward because you said you saw that what had happened in myanmar was happening in Mm -hmm. ethiopia Mm -hmm. and that there's Mm -hmm. a that, that facebook has a major impact in global conflicts and so you're a data scientist who understands how code translates into human action. So can you explain to the listeners how that yeah. translates and how that happens? happened? Yeah. So it's, you know, you know, I'm, I'm assuming most of your listeners, because they're listening to me right now, they probably interact with, with, with social media in English. And one of the things that's like really hard for English speakers to appreciate or, or people who live in America particularly to appreciate is that the English version of Facebook in the United States because it's actually different if you were even in the UK. You know, the English version in the United States is the cleanest, safest version of Facebook in the world. Mm. That instead of doing these strategies around like, let's try to design for safety up front, you know, designing for safety up front works in every language in the world. Instead, if you use the strategy that Facebook claims is the core of their safety you know, profile, which is we're gonna train these magical AIs that are going to be able to identify the good content, the bad content, and like take down the bad content. You have to rewrite those systems language by language. And what ends up happening is unless you speak one of the largest languages in the world, you end up getting left behind. Now, I'll give you an example. When the violence in Ethiopia was happening back in 2021, so just for context for listeners, there was a civil war where social media played a large role in fanning violence against uh, an ethnic mi- minority in Ethiopia. You know, Ethiopia has 100 million people. They have 95 dialects in six major language families. And Facebook had only uh, just a, 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 you know one or two safety systems out of say 100 safety systems or 150 sa- safety systems that exist in English. They had one or two safety systems available in two of those six language families. And so you might say, like, why? Like, if, 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 if these platforms are being used to, to uh, cause genocide 
and and the United Nations has come out in the case of Myanmar at least and written long reports clearly pointing the finger at Facebook for causing ethnic mm-hmm. violence. Um, you know, if you know this is happening, why wouldn't you spend more on safety in vulnerable places? And and something that's not necessarily obvious to listeners is uh, these platforms are advertising supported. You know, you don't you don't pay a monthly subscription for Facebook. And in many of these fragile places, Facebook makes almost no money. If anything, they lose money because they often will subsidize people's internet access to access Facebook. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being one of these um, like very, um, uh, you know, there's, it's like there's a bureaucrat there deciding how much people's lives are worth. You know, it's like we're, we've decided to give, give Facebook to populations where we can't, where we lose money to actually keep them safe at the level they need. And so they just don't. Yeah. So it, it, in kind of technical terms, how how is it that Facebook was fueling these 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 mm. this violence? These how conflicts? did it happen? Yeah. Sure. How how did it happen technically that that it went from so, you know the, the coding that was happening uh, at yeah. the at the terminal at Facebook to mm-hmm. violence in the street? So I'll give I'll, I'll give you I'll give you some context. So um uh. The New York Times has extensively reported on how in Myanmar, you know, the Myanmar military sent, you know, uh, officers in their military to Russia in the early 2000s to learn how Russia runs information operations. And in the early 2000s, they did that with things like blogs, right? Like blogs were the way that people conversed on the Internet. They did it in forums, like where people would hang out and chat. But a lot of the techniques were similar. You know, they would build up an audience using a, a page. Maybe they would uh, make it. Maybe they make one for a local celebrity and help build that up. Um, maybe it was just like you know, a community page for a, a village or like a, a, a metropolitan area. Um, and then when it came time for the junta to say, okay, now's the time to to quote cleanse the country of Muslims. These seemingly innocuous pages started pushing out content talking about how, you know, we, we have to go, you know, uh, we have to go uh, get rid of the vermin, get rid of the vermin and things like that. Um, and so it's one of these things where uh, we we don't really think in general about the idea of what are the channels of information that are reaching us. But in the case of Myanmar, the military understood they could set up channels of information and then co-opt them. And that's what happened. Yeah, that is it. It, it is so amazing how uh, the the world of the internet and the tech world and algorithms that mm-hmm. most of us don't even think about impact our emotions and our relationships and global mm-hmm. politics. That is, I mean, that it's it's fascinating because I I don't often think about the technical aspect of that. So reading your book and and and, and learning mm-hmm. what you have revealed, like it's really um, it, it it's really fascinating just to think about, especially moving forward all of the things that mm. we can do um and, and like you said in a positive way too i mean they, it's it, it's not just all doom and gloom and so kind of in that vein you say that facebook isn't evil it isn't ill-intended and it got where it did due to kind of several reasonable people making what seemed like very reasonable business decisions individually isolated decisions were all good and that kind of in comp- combination they became problematic. So I think I think one way to 
I think one way to think of it is, you know, Facebook is the product of a system of incentives. So like, for example, the last six months has been really scary for me because, you know, Facebook made a lot of progress in say the year after I came out. And this has been the quote year of efficiency at Facebook where, you know, they fired 20,000 people and all those people right. were working in safety. And, and what happens is like the system of incentives we have today says, hey, company, you have to report your profit. You have to report your losses. You have to report what money your expenses you had to spend to get that profit. But you don't have to report what the societal costs were. You know, there's a social ledger, like a societal ledger um, that keeps accumulating debts, but you never have to report it. And, and Facebook is what happens when you when you let uh, a piece of vital community infrastructure be managed just with with metrics. And so how do we fix that? What what kind of regulation mm. will keep these problems from continuing to happen? One of the things that's been really transformative for me about the last, I guess it's almost two years now, is I, the, you know, I've come to really appreciate how does the world change? You know, how do how do like societal issues change? And and the the moment in time that I hear like I feel a lot of resonance for is is the mid 1960s. So mm -hmm. so people take for granted um, uh, that cars get safer every year. You know, like every year we get airbags, we get side airbags, we get you know magical thing that knows where our head is and does X Y Z thing. Let me cradle us in a crash you know just just magical or like um car you know cars that hit the brakes for us when we get sleepy you know we expect cars to get safer and safer but in the 1960s you know cars were reversing a trend that you know cars had been getting safer for 60 years only suddenly they were getting more dangerous like more people were dying per mile driven and and uh, a book came out called unsafe at any speed and it was absolutely like catalytic, like it was like a, a, a match that lit a fire because the book said very plainly, engineers in these companies have known for years that very basic things like seatbelts save lives. You know, right now a seatbelt is an optional thing in a car, a thing that you have to pay for. You know, it costs hun hundreds of dollars in today's dollars to get a seatbelt. Um, and they know it could save your life. And the reason why they don't do it is they're afraid that if they start talking, if, if their company is the one to start talking about safety and no one else does, people will ask, why, why do you need to talk about safety? Are your cars more dangerous? Um, sure. And so I think it's one of these things. And so there's this question of like, why is it that when that book came out, we got a National Transportation Safety Administration, you know, we got the Department of Transportation, we got seatbelts all in a year. Why did that happen? And we're not seeing a similar level of change today. And the thing that I call it in the book is, you know, we are not actually kept safe just by the government, right? Like it feels really satisfying to pass a law, but there's this whole ecosystem, you know, there's there of an ecosystem of accountability where different parties have different skills, different interests, different aptitudes. And those are people like litigators. You know, there are people like insurance companies that don't want to pay. Like in the case of cars, insurance companies didn't want to have to pay out money for these accidents. So they wanted to pin the blame on the car companies. You mm -hmm. know, you had those litigators throughout finding clients that have been hurt to hold uh, companies responsible. You had investors that wanted long term returns. You had concerned citizens like Mothers Against Drunk Driving that pushed for lots of things. The thing that 
caused all of that to be possible was that people could independently access information. You know, you could buy a car and crash it. You could take a car apart. Like my father, like, waxes poetic about the summer he spent when he was, like, 19 taking apart a VW bug, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you and I, we can want as much as we want to be able to spend a summer taking apart Facebook and understanding it, but we don't get to. Right. right. It runs on a data center. It's a way for, it's, 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 um, our, our economy is becoming more and more opaque and, and we can't do those kinds of independent inspections. And so that's a, a very, very, very long way of saying we need transparency. Like right. Europe went ahead and passed a law last year called the Digital Services Act, which said for the first time, the public was allowed to ask questions and get answers. And that sounds really, really basic. It sounds like, well, Francis, duh. But the reality is social media is the most powerful industry in the world where we don't have a right to ask even basic questions. Sure. And so that's the thing that I'm pushing for today. Absolutely. And, and, and you talk about how kind of uh, the, the uh, opaque nature of this kind of gives an illusion of accountability uh, with, you know, oversight mm -hmm. boards that are internal. Um, and so Ooh, actually, 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 wait, 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 before we go on, what do you think the oversight board does? I always like to ask people this. So Facebook has something called the Facebook oversight board. What, what do you think the oversight board does? Well, one would think that the oversight board would be making sure that everything was running above board and running yeah. uh, according to regulation that that is what one would be led to believe. But I know that that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's things like this where like people are shocked. Like, so I actually now do this at public, like whenever I do public speaking and I get to like talk, I'll, 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 I'll start pulling the audience and I will just keep having people guess what does the oversight board do until someone gets it right? Because you're yeah. totally right. It sounds like, oh, oversight, like these are the, these are the adults in the room. Like they're there to make sure things don't go off the rails. The only thing the oversight board can do and Facebook has spent a quarter of a billion dollars. It's like $270 million funding this thing. The only thing it can do is if you get your content taken down, you can appeal to the oversight board and they might put it up back up a year from now. Yeah. Right? And even that reinforces this kind of illusion that the only thing that matters is content moderation. And, and, and we don't, we don't have legislation right now that requires that there be mm -hmm. oversight mm -hmm. of of that. And and so I mean you you mentioned mm -hmm. that this is, you know, there this is kind of starting over in the EU and 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 here mm -hmm. what can we do to bring forth that ever important very necessary transparency that's going to help, you know, clear the air here. So the thing I, I, I always encourage people, um, so like transparency sounds so nerdy. Like, like I feel like like a big part about why I wrote this book was like just to like try to be a hype woman for transparency. You know, like I know it sounds like we're giving a bunch of academics data. Is that really going to do anything? Um, you know, let's take a, a step back for a second and, and like think about whatever issue you are most concerned about social media. It could be kids and sleep deprivation. It could be being censored, like having, you know, freedom of speech is an important thing. It could mm -hmm. be violence. It could be, you know, people getting radicalized. All of these things have data 
where if the company were required to report it, they would do a better job in any of those functions. And I'll give you, I'll give you a really basic example. Like yeah. right now, uh, the Surgeon General, the Surgeon General did an advisory maybe two weeks ago. And he said, uh, you know, we have a national public health crisis in terms of teenage mental health and social media is, is a major driver of the problem. And he pointed out that a third, one in three teenagers say, or I think it's children, I don't even know if it's teenagers. Uh, children say they're on screens until midnight or later most weeknights. So you can say, Francis, how is transparency going to help kids go to bed earlier? Imagine a world where Facebook had to report every week how many kids were online at 10, 11, midnight, 1, 2, 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, one in three kids is on until midnight. I bet 10% are on until two, right? In a world where Facebook had to report that every week, parents would organize. You know, advertisers right. would boycott. There would be divestment, right? And, and companies would figure out a bunch of different creative ways to help kids actually go to bed when they want to go to bed. Mm -hmm. um, and because they can operate in the dark, those trends continue. Right. Absolutely. And that 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 is a that is a very real world example. That's the perfect uh, a perfect way to illustrate how transparency would actually help. And I mean, it helps in every other industry. I, I don't every know why other it industry help. Yeah. Right. Yes. And and I think that we just didn't. A lot of people never thought, as we were just discussing, never thought mm -hmm. about the need for that in this field, because this was something new and something that we're the end user and we're simply thinking about the product. We're not thinking of mm -hmm. it as an industry. And it's now clearly an industry that is here to stay. And so fixing that can turn it into something positive and something much less mm -hmm. toxic, which is, is fantastic. And so just so back to you and kind of how you got where you are, your, your college mm -hmm. experience really mm -hmm. kind of primed you for this, uh, you know, mm -hmm. from your experience researching for debates to you had a very highly detailed capstone project uh, and, and working at the, the yearbook. And so, so you really kind of learned how to document, how to do research, how to organize it very clearly and plainly in a way that is easily understood. And so, um, so what made you decide to pull yourself out of comfortable anonymity and use mm. use all of this and and step forward? I know you hired a nonprofit legal mm. aid company to kind of help guide you, but what what personally mm. did you weigh to to decide mm. to come forth? Because your life totally changed. Because yeah. I never intended to come out, right? Like it's one of these things where it's like the, the thing that inspired me to act was I was working on a team called Civic Integrity. And it was the part of Facebook that was in charge of trying to make uh, Facebook like a constructive force in the world. Um, you know, it came out of 2016 when um, it's, there were a number of issues where Facebook was kind of asleep at the wheel. Like it, it wasn't Russian misinformation that was the problem. It was like uh, there was on the order of like 10,000 Macedonian, just like um, troll farms, right? They were just like running wild on Facebook, like making money on advertising by putting up stories like Pope endorses Donald Trump, right? Just like there, there was, there was, yeah, Facebook was asleep at the wheel in 2016, but mm -hmm. they formed this thing called civic integrity. And, and for four years, they really tried to do the right thing. You know, like the only part of the company that was growing was civic integrity, at least on the Facebook side, you know, the only part. Yeah. Um, 
like facebook.com. And uh, right after the 2020 election, they called us all together on Zoom because, you know, it's 2020. And they tell us, you know, our work is so valuable to the company. You know, it's so critical that they're going to incorporate us into other parts of the company. You know, we need to go spread those learnings elsewhere. And at Facebook, like Facebook, like managed by, by I, I like to joke, like managed by chaos. Like they would just like throw up large parts of the company every six months and just reorganize them. And there are actually documents in the disclosures that are like, I don't want to say they're fatalistic, but they're like, imagine you were a people manager and every six to nine months you just got put on a new team. Like, how okay. would you be a people manager in a world like that? You know, people kind of not despairing, but kind of resigning themselves to it. But um, yeah. so when Facebook would do those reorgs, I, you know, you could tell who won and who lost, like who, who was in charge when everything set, like all the dust settled. And it was clear that civic integrity was was no longer a priority for the company. Yeah. And so um, I, I took a class in business school. So I'm, I'm a little bit of an anomaly in that I am very, very deep in how do you build algorithmic products, but I also have an MBA because like I really passionately care about like organizational behavior and like organizational health. And I took this class called change management, which was um, about like how do organizations change? You know, individuals struggle so much to change in even basic ways. You know, once you get a bunch of people together, you know, all the things that makes organizing people make it even more complicated to change. But the most and one of the most important things you have to do is you have to appoint a vanguard and say they are the future. Like they know where we're going. We're going to follow them. If you cross them, the, you know, the executives are going to protect them. Like that is the future of the company. And for four years, Facebook did that. And when Facebook told our team, like, you know, we're, we're dissolving you. I knew there was no chance that Facebook could heal itself from within. If, if Facebook was going to get better, it needed help from outside. And so that was what made me decide to come forward um, or like uh, begin documenting what was happening. Right. Um, what made me decide to come out, which is the thing that disrupted my life, um, was my lawyers were just like really blunt with me. They were like, you know, Facebook knows you did it, right? Like they can look at, you know, the access logs, like who, who looked at which documents won. Like they know only one person touched all these things. Yeah. If you don't come forward, you are, are, are letting Facebook define who you are. Like at some random date in the future, you might wake up to, you know, some cartoon version of yourself uh, in the New York Times. So you either need to take responsibility or just accept that you're going to always live with that sword hanging over your head. And so sure. I ended up coming up. Sure. And what a what a life change from from someone who mm. was who was kind of shy totally. and enjoyed anonymity. To, <laughs> uh, I, you, you, you know, you start you start your book with a preface talking about riding the elevator at the State of the Union oh, yeah. address, you know, and, and you're, you're you're nervous. And this is a very public uh, public forum and you you normally can view yourself as a conduit for the documents which you know for the information and this was about you and so in in the years since this has happened and and since writing the book mm -hmm. how has your life mm. changed how 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 are things mm. different for you now yeah yeah you know it's it's funny like um uh people are sometimes surprised when i say like i'm i'm an introvert like uh, I always like to joke, like I'm a very well socialized introvert, but like, you know, at some point 
people exhaust me. Um, right. That's why, like, we, we live very happily by the ocean in, in Puerto Rico. And, like, you know, we might go, my husband and I might go two weeks without seeing anyone in person, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, coming out was very, has been a really kind of transformative experience for me because, like, you know, I spent a lot of my life uh, avoiding being seen. You know, like, I, I'm, I'm very tall, and I think, like, because I like physically stood out, like I had like like my I love my father dearly. He's like six foot four, um, and he mm-hmm. he has a little bit of a hunch because like you know I, I I empathize with that. Like I I made myself smaller for a lot of my life, um, and coming out has like really forced me to learn how to show up in my own life, and I think it's a thing that I didn't even appreciate I wasn't doing until I was forced to like actually take responsibility for my actions in public, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. And, um, or like learn to be comfortable, um, like being thanked, right? It sounds really simple, but like, um, you know, I, I got some advice from, from a, a mentor years ago where like when someone thanks you, like gives you a compliment, your job is not to just like convince them that it's not justified. You know, your job is to say, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how uncomfortable you are. You just say, you just say thank you, and like it's it's been really interesting. It's like um, there's a lot of people who are are really grateful that, you know, when you when you when you're being gaslit, and like that's what happened to the public for the last I don't know at least five years, if not ten years. Sure. You know, like a lot of people came forward and said, even the Senate directly, like the maybe a month before I before the Wall Street Journal started publishing, six weeks. Um, the Senate straight up asked Facebook, can we please see your research on anything regarding children and mental health? And Facebook wrote them a letter two weeks later that was basically six pages of no. <laughs> no thank you. Um, it's it's actually quite a, it's, it's a remarkable letter. Um, like I have little excerpts of it in the book um, where like they, they say things like, you know, so they were asked plainly, do you have any research implying that there's any problem with kids' mental health? And they write back, there is no established safe amount of uh, social media usage for kids. Those are two different questions. That is not a direct answer. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> that's not a direct answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the direct answer would be like, yes, we have a giant mountain of research on kids' mental health. And no, you may not see it. Um, but uh, the... Uh, yeah, like, you know, there were a lot of people who f- felt this weird, you know, disconnect, like this dissonance where they lived one experience and they were hearing a different experience. You know, they're having that experience described back to them in a very different way. And, and I, I think especially for journalists, like for the people who have really made their lives about, you know, trying to understand what Facebook is doing, a lot of them uh, have been like, I, I have so much more gratitude for the process of journalism because I can't imagine just having having to listen to Facebook spin every day and still right. go on reporting, right? Oh my God, the heroes that walk among us. That's all I have to say. I mean, when you know um, something is you know something is spin, you know that it does not have any substance or any basis in the meat of the topic, but that's the statement you have. I guess I you know roll, that's the statement right? you have. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like that's their that's their comment. Like, do you have to publish yeah. it even when it's like, you know? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's one of these things where we're having to live that experience. Like I, I, I 
it's been it's been really interesting. Like I've, I've had a very easy whistleblower compared to Snowden, Chelsea Manning, reality winner. Like I didn't cross the federal government. I'm not sure. I'm I'm hopefully not going to jail for anything. Um, I'm I'm very, very appreciative that, um, you know, there's a lot of women who exist in the public arena who get treated horribly online. And, you know, I have open DMs on Twitter. Uh, People message me on, you know, Facebook Messenger, like my email address is on my website. Like people, people leave me alone. And um, as someone who studied safety, and social media for as long as I did, I know that is a huge blessing because it is not a given. Sure, sure. Before we leave, is there anything that you want the audience to know about this, about moving forward? Yeah, what what is your your parting message? I would I would love to give you a party message. Um, I think the, the you know this is what I usually like when I, I I do I I do a lot of public speaking. Like we're trying to found this nonprofit, and because we're a startup, you know every dollar so it's called Beyond the Screen. You can go check out our website beyondthescreen.org. Um, you know because we are trying to make every grant dollar like stretch as far as possible. Like you know my whole salary comes from public speaking, right? So you know I come and I give talks to conferences and schools and whatever. Um, and the thing I always close with is, you know, you know, I know it feels overwhelming right now, you know, listening to me talk about genocide, listening to me talk about like kids getting depressed or like self-harm, all these things feel really, really overwhelming um, because there are new spaces we have to learn how to deal with. Like, like we have to be the ones to figure out like how do we live with these technologies in effective ways, right? Mm-hmm. But, the, but the reality is, Every single time before we have invented a new communication technology, the exact same thing has happened, right? Like it's incredibly disruptive, sometimes for a while, but humans learn and they respond and we figure out ways to live with the technologies in effective ways. So I'll give you some examples. You know, newspapers, we we kind of talk about newspapers as if they're these like legendary things that once were like so civil, you know, like, oh, if only we had newspapers, like if instead of like social media, Um, you know, we had full blown wars over misinformation in newspapers, you know, like, like, like full, like the United States invaded people because of misinformation in newspapers. But we, but we learned and we responded, you know, we, we founded journalism schools and established journalistic ethics and came up with media concentration rules where you couldn't all own all the newspapers in a single place. So you could have diversity of thought. It's kind of like transparency regulation. You know, right. radio is disruptive. You know, the rise of dictators in World War II was was in, in, in no small part fueled by the fact that for the first time in human history, you could hear the voice of your leader. You know, think of that emotional resonance, like like your podcaster. You understand what how intimate it is to hear someone, right? You know, for the first time, like people could get really emotionally swayed because you could connect with people that way. But we, you know, we learned, we responded, we invested, like particularly Europe, invested a lot in public media. They said, hey, information quality, like the process of how we run these things, it's really really important. Um, you know, we we learned, we responded. Um, we are going to figure this out. It might get, it might get a lot worse before it gets better, but every single, every single time before when we've done this, we have eventually figured it out. So I want to leave people with that, that little spark of hope. 
Excellent. Excellent. And hope is what we all need in this world. Well, Francis Haugen, the title mm -hmm. of the book is The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. Francis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. And for Cultural Controversy, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.